17 and verses 23 and 24, and then Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and 21. Uh, all right, so Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11, the year for canceling debts. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cr cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites and in, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to do. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Um, now from Leviticus chapter 25, uh, starting in verse 8. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Concentrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for, all, for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. And then verse 23 and 24, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Um, and then Luke chapter four, uh, starting in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Oh, in the church I formerly attended, there was a pastor and his wife who, uh, you know, welcomed me into their family and treated me and a lot of young people as part of their family. I was friends with their children, and so we spent a lot of time in their home. And I always, and I still see them as the incredibly loving, but also very cool uncle and aunt that I hope every 
single person gets to have in their life. I remember hearing them one day uh, share how God has provided for them in their family. And even though they don't come from tremendous means, they were able to purchase their home without having to go into debt. They radically trusted God and gratefully testified of God's goodness. And as a college student, when I heard this, I was like, hmm, I was inspired. And I wondered, is it possible to live this way? Over the years, I've heard of others, other Jesus followers who continue to trust God in this way, making a lifestyle choice, choices that don't require debt. And many of you are like shaking your heads like, how is that even possible? They may be reading texts like Romans chapter 13, verse 8, which says, let no debt remain outstanding. Other versions say, owe no one anything except the continuing debt to love one another. But the reality is navigating through our modern society without borrowing any money seems idealistic, maybe even impossible. Especially when you have some of our basic, biggest expenses become much, have become much more expensive compared to a generation ago. Forty years ago, homes were on average 3.2 time, times the average median household income. Today, they lie at around 4.5 times. So that's 50% higher cost in housing. And I don't think salaries have gone up as, as quickly. When it comes to college education, 49% of students took loans in 1990. But almost three quarters of students take loans now, now as of 2016. And with the debt amount as college, as college graduates in 1990, they, they, uh, 1993, they, they walked out of school with about $9,320 in student loan debt. But last year, that amount was 30600 I mean, even that number seems kind of low. <laughs> when it comes to the cost of public ed education, co colleges, in 1980, the annual, each year cost $2,300. But in 2021, public colleges cost 10560 This is an average. And even, I think, you might think those are low numbers. Debt is a stark reality for most Americans. But with the costs of these things going up so much, it seems like living without debt is a bit unrealistic. You know, in this series on just relationships and a just world, we spent the last few weeks looking at economic justice. And so to today, we turn our attention to debt. How do Jesus' followers have a healthy relationship with debt? And what are we to do about these kind of verses that Kendra just read for us regarding the cancellation of debt? Is it realistic to go through life without debt? And even more, is it realistic to go through life canceling any debt every seven years? So there's this ideal, and then there's this reality, and there's the goal. So we'll talk through that. The ideal, the reality, and the goal. Now, when this was written, they were an agrarian society, that they're deeply connected to the land. One's livelihood was deeply dependent on the land and the land's ability to produce. Whether you owned the land or whether you worked the land and rented it, if you suffered a famine or poor crops, you would have no recourse but to sell your land or borrow from a creditor to provide for yourself and for your family until the debt could be repaid. Now, for many of us in modern society, we often take on debt like buying a home in hopes that it will appreciate in value. Or we borrow for a college education in hopes that our career will eventually pay itself off. 
But in ancient cultures, apart from the most wealthy, debt was some, not something you just took on. It was something to get ahead. Debt was taken on because something had happened to you that you got behind on. Debt was taken on in times of hardship. So keep that scope in mind as we walk through this today. The Deuteronomy text describes this rhythm of canceling debts every seven years. Israelites who had lent to fellow Israelites were commanded to cancel their debts on the seventh year, on the year of the Sabbath. You could say that the Israelites had a healthy cancel culture. But what does this debt cancellation actually mean? Perhaps exploring the Hebrew word shamat or shamata, which is what is translated in the NIV as cancel, it's also translated as a word release in other versions. Now this word release is repeated five times in the verb and noun form in these first three verses. So maybe there's something here going on. The, ver the word suggests letting go. And here in Deuteronomy 15, the debt is let go. The same word is used in Exodus chapter 23, verse 11, describing letting the land rest and to lie fallow. In other words, produce expected from the land is let go. In other verses in Scripture, the word is used to describe physically letting go of something and dropping it from your hand. So the word seems to describe letting go of obligations or expectations, something that is entitled to you. Some commentators have taken these texts and suggested that this temporary release, of, that this release from debt was temporary so that the debtor could be relieved of some pressure so that they could work the land and you know, regain a bit more footing for themselves. But in light of the Sabbath year commandment where all land is laid fallow, a temporary forbearance may not make the most sense of these texts because they would, wouldn't be working land anyways to provide for themselves. This law seems to suggest that a complete release of debt is what they're talking about. Additionally, the Leviticus text outlining this principle of Jubilee on the 50th year seems to support this rhythm of debt cancellation happening every seven years and ultimately once in a lifetime, all debts are released and people are able to return back to their family land. Now, this rhythm of seven-year releases and ultimately a once-in-a-lifetime release during the year of Jubilee is a description of how debt incurred by hardship is not meant to be a permanent state and to be punitive. And that's the ideal conveyed here in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, verse 4, where it says, There need be no poor among you, for in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. You see, in God's vision for the Israelites, there should be no poor among them. This is the intended ideal for God's people to live differently in the world and to bless the world in ways that, in how they treated the most economically vulnerable. As you can see in verse 5, this ideal was not dependent on their human agency or their willpower or their wisdom, but it was completely dependent on Israel's obedience to obey God's commands. So that's this ideal, no poor people. But what's the reality? Notably, where most of God's commands regarding compassion and justice at this point in the book of Deuteronomy address Israel's uh, care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. This is one of the few commands in Deuteronomy that speaks specifically to the needs of the poor. The concern for uh, lending to the poor here in Deuteronomy is rare. 
and it appears to distinguish between lending to foreigners, like in business, and business lending between fellow Israelites. Now, we're not given the reason for why people are poor, but again, in an agrarian economy, one's livelihood was deeply tied to the land and its ability to produce. So whether the lack of production is due to natural disaster or maybe it's due to unwise choices or lack of skill in working the land, we don't know why, but the command presupposes a, a, a degree of personal responsibility for your resources. But it also recognizes that that is not the reality for some. Unexpected and uncontrollable circumstances do arise. And the ideal is that there would be no poor, but that's not the reality for all. So as we get to verses 7 and 10, seven and ten Moses moves from describing this ideal future to the reality that awaits them as they cross the Jordan into the promised land as God's people. He says, there will be poor amongst them, verse 7 and verse 11. Right after verse 4, he says, there should be no poor. He's identifying the reality. And the concern we see here is not to focus on the cause of the poverty, but on how the rest of Israel treats those uh, uh, who are indebted due to extreme poverty. When their debt is caused by hardship and circumstances beyond their control, a measure of compassion and kindness is called for based on their common familial ties. Now, the NIV softens the emphasis here in its preference to translate the Hebrew word brother as, quote, your fellow Israelite. You'll see that kind of peppered throughout the, the passage, mostly in favor of gender inclusivity. But the word here is repeated seven times in these few verses, and I think it's to emphasize their common relationship as God's chosen people. God's people are to prioritize their identity and their calling as God's children before their economic standing and before their social standing with one another. Their reality as God's chosen people is the reality that is meant to inform how they relate to one another as creditors and as debtors, as rich and poor, and as landowners and as servants. The reality of being God's children is meant to inform all of those relationships and take priority. So with that reality and identity in mind, Moses then honestly names the reality of human sinfulness that happens in our world. He says that there is a, there, there's a generally a specific sin of the rich taking advantage of the poor sisters and brothers. But Moses also goes further in verses 7 to 9. He begins to address the heart and also the hands Despite being living as fellow Israel, children of the living God, he is particularly concerned with the disposition of the rich towards the poor and actions of generosity towards them. And so he outlines three prohibitions. Number one, he says, don't have a twisted mind or wicked thought in verse 9. He's warning them to be careful not to harbor the wicked thought that, that might arise saying, well, you know, the year of release is just a couple of years away, and if I lend this money and I have to let it go, I'm not going to get it back. He's saying, don't be a Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge towards the poor sisters and brothers around you, thinking that they're here to take advantage of you. You see, a Scrooge calculates how much they're going to lose 
based on the closeness to the year of release. A Scrooge focuses on what they might lose rather than how others might benefit when they are in need. That wicked thought comes from a heart lacking compassion. Instead, the encouragement is to provide a loan freely to benefit those who are disadvantaged rather than to profit from the loan. That's why this text in Leviticus points out in the Leviticus text, points out loans to fellow Israelites are to be made interest-free and to be released. Secondly, he says, don't give an evil eye when he uses the term ill will. Do not show ill will. You know, there's times, appropriate times to express no pity for a person's financial decisions. But when a fellow member of God's people faces poverty or hardship, the eye is meant to be compassionate and not to question their motive or lack of responsibility. They are in need. And by asking to borrow, they have exhausted all other avenues available to them. So don't show ill will. Lastly, don't be stingy with what God has given to you. In verses eight, 7 and 8, he says, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted amongst them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whenever they are in need. So we've talked about a number of realities. The first reality is that there will be poor people because of circumstances beyond our control. And until Jesus comes back again, poverty will likely exist because we live in a broken world. We cannot control natural disasters. We cannot control whether nations go to war and cause global uh, upset to the economy and gas prices go like, what, 50% higher? And the second reality is that the identity of God's people, as God's people, is meant to inform all other relationships and how we treat one another. God's people are to lend and to release debt much differently from those outside the faith because of our shared identity as God's children. And this third reality that Moses names is the presence of selfishness and judgment that so easily seeps into all of our hearts where we, many who are rich, are instead asked to be compassionate and kind in lending to the poor. So We've talked about the ideal and the reality, and we've unpacked these few verses on debt forgiveness, but so far we've taken most of our time trying to understand the context of this command as it was given, because it seems so out there and disconnected from our reality. And maybe you're disappointed so far that I haven't said anything about wholesale forgiveness of all debt. Because I think, if you're like me, when I read this text, it's like, well, you got my mortgage payments, we've got some college loans, we've got car loans, we've got credit card debt, all these things that we take on. Wouldn't it be nice to run those all up and every seven years, poof, it's gone? If we follow the Bible, maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Well, if you're like me, if that was in the back of my mind, maybe we've missed the goal of this command. The goal of this command is to release a fellow Israelite from their debt. In releasing a fellow Israelite from their debt is not to so much focused on the financial benefit, financial benefit for you as a lender or financial benefit for you as a debtor. But instead, the goal is to focus on care and compassion for those who are most vulnerable economically amongst us. The goal is to recognize that nothing you have is actually yours. As God reminds the Israelites in Leviticus 25, verse 23, there he says, 
Everything belongs to God. The land belongs to me. I'm just letting you use it. I'm entrusting it to you for my good work in the world to bless the nations. So some of God's work in the world involves you working and saving to provide for yourself and the family. But God's work in the world also involves using the financial resources that God has given to us to meet the needs of our fellow siblings in God's family and ultimately those outside the family. Ultimately, the way we use our financial resources, including our lending to others, including our forgiveness of others' financial obligations, this is all to model the generosity and kindness of God and God's care for those who are most vulnerable economically. So what might this look like lived out in our day? First of all, I don't think this is licensed to go out and take unwise loans as much as you can in hopes that they will be forgiven every seven years. That would be missing the point. Now, most of us don't depend literally on land for our livelihood. But some of us might be at risk financially because of limited insurance coverage, because of limited emergency savings or family support. I think at the very least, for those within the family of God as fellow followers of Jesus, we can take this command pretty literally to lend and to forgive debt freely to one another as a challenge to reflect the limitless generosity of the God that we worship especially for other members of God's family. But what does that look like extended beyond the family of God? I think this is, there is an incredible opportunity for creativity. I was reading this you know, earlier this week, and I don't know whether he's a person of faith, but you know, billionaire Mark Cuban, you might recognize his name. You know, see, he seems to take a different path than other tech billionaires who want to spend their wealth on building space rockets to Mars. You know, earlier this year, Mark Cuban announced the start of an online pharmacy with no middlemen and fully transparent pricing in an attempt to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. Now, though it's only limited to maybe 100 generic drugs, the company targets a recognized need. They went to the Federal Food and Drug Administration's uh, drug shortage list and says, we're going to produce those drugs. And the company provides full disclosure on their cost to manufacture the drug drugs they add a 15% markup and a $3 pharmacist dispense, dispensary? Dispense, dispensing fee. Now, this is not quite lending and forgiveness of debt, but perhaps prevents people from having to go into debt. It his actions reflect an open-handed approach to running a business that focuses on meeting a need that the most vulnerable cannot afford often. And over the past few weeks, you know, we've been talking earlier in the series about reparations. And, and as, a result, as, a result, as a result of that, I've had a series of conversations with others about what it would look like to reallocate wealth in ways that benefit those impacted by the legacy of slavery, particularly here in D.C. Some have even offered their, wealth, their own wealth and resources to accomplish this. And I've been exploring what that might look like by looking at what's being done currently in the city, and as especially as it relates to housing. But as you know, in a region with high housing costs, borrowing is almost inevitable. But how can we make this a possibility for those who are most vulnerable economically? 
especially due to the legacy of slavery and racism in America that has robbed our African-American sisters and brothers of power and of wealth and of opportunity. These are the kind of questions that, and conversations that have been going on as we've been navigating this. I've been speaking with another one of our church members uh, who has been getting to know a single mom in the city. And as this woman has shared her situation and her financial struggles with car loans and car payments, the small group members who heard the story wondered whether there had been a, she had been a victim of predatory lending and offered to review the documents. Did you know that there's a sleazy practice to roll people's previous car loans into high interest rate extending extended term loans that result in the loan being worth more than the car the moment it drives off the lot? This is downright evil, and it comes for the profit motive. And here's a side note. If, anything, if anyone trying to sell you anything ever asks you, how much do you want to pay for a month? I can make it work for you. Be very, very cautious. <laughs> Invite someone wise and trustworthy to review the terms of that loan before you ever sign anything. You know, in all of these cases, the concern is not about how to make the most money. But how can we use money to help those who suffer, who are most vulnerable economically? And so if you're interested in conversations like these, I invite you to join in our final 3D uh, class next Sunday after the service or at an upcoming gathering to discuss how WCF might practically engage in acts of reparation. This is something that began last summer and I know there's been talk about re-engaging with that conversation. These are the ways that we want to live out the ideal as a community. But until that ideal arrives, when there will be no more poor people, the reality is that poverty due to unexpected hardship will be a part of the world that we live in. Even Jesus said that in his ministry. As Jesus followers, our efforts may involve change at the structural and social levels, societal levels. But when it comes to economic justice, even more important is that we keep, our, keep those in mind who are, most at, who are most at risk in our economy. With a generous heart and with an open hand, may God use you and I together here at WCF and the rest of the body of Christ around the world to reflect God's generous, debt-forgiving character exemplified in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the ultimate goal of our life and service, to point people to God's blessing in Christ. Now, we, of course, do that in spiritual and relational ways, but texts like these remind us that we can point to God's blessings in very practical ways as well. So may we do so generously and boldly and radically, led by the Spirit of God and ultimately for the glory of God in the world. Amen.